I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The FT. Even if we contain the well and even if the well is capped in mid-August, there's still a significant amount of oil out there. And the oil recovery and the impacts of this oil will probably extend well into the fall in terms of oil coming ashore, tar balls, beach cleanup. And then we will be moving, of course, at that point to the natural resources damage assessment, trying to understand the long-term uh, environmental and ecological impact of the event. That was Thad Allen, the U.S. Coast Guard Admiral, who speaks for the U.S. administration on the BP oil spill on the Gulf of Mexico. Things have moved on a bit since then, as engineers were forced yesterday to delay the tests needed before fitting the said replacement cap, apparently on the orders of the U.S. administration. We'll be talking today about what this delay means for BP. You're listening to Energy Weekly, and I'm Ed Crooks. As well as BP, we'll be taking a look at the fallout from ClimateGate, which we discussed in last week's show. We'll be looking at which European energy and industrial companies have become the most important buyers of carbon credits. And finally, we'll take a look at the case for investing in smart grids. I'm joined in the studio this week by Fiona Harvey, the FT's environment correspondent. So first to BP, uh, Fiona, you've been looking at this this morning, this question of the, the containment cap, which seemed very promising. Sorry, I call it containment cap, of course, they're now calling it, I think, the ceiling cap or the capping stack, sometimes they're described as, which seemed like a really promising thing when they were talking about it over the past couple of days. This is a thing that could actually allow the world to be sealed off. They drop it on top of the blowout preventer, which is the, the broken old set of uh, valves at the top of the wellhead, and then they kind of shut off the valves, and that stops the oil flowing, and job done at last. What are we now? Uh, nearly three months after the accident, at last they could shut off the well. It turns out not to be quite that simple. No, BP has had another setback late last night and what's happened is that the tests that had to be carried out before that cap could be sealed have now been delayed and they've been delayed at the behest of the US government. And do we know why that is? What have the US government's concerns been? They want some more analysis to be done before they can be satisfied that this is the best way of going about things. They're worried that actually if the well is damaged, the casing inside the well is ruptured in some way. This is sort of the steel lining inside the rock of the, the well, inside yeah? Inside where yeah. The, the, the oil is coming from. If you put a cap on top of that, it could increase the pressure inside the well and then the oil could start to seep out in other directions and would then become more difficult to contain. So it's like kind of blocking off a tap or something like that, and then you crack the pipe and it starts spurting out somewhere else, and the oil could seep through the rock and, and, and it, out in, into the water. It could. It could. It could find its way up through other sort of cracks in the rock, other, other aspects of the geology there, um, and that's the fear. Now, on to Climate Gate, which we discussed last week, but the reverberations are continuing to be felt. Let's remind ourselves, first of all, of the outcome of the investigations into the Climatic Research Unit at the University of East Anglia. On the specific allegations made against the behaviour of true scientists, we find that their rigour and honesty as scientists are not in doubt. In addition, we do not find that their behaviour has prejudiced the balance of advice given to policymakers. In particular, we did not find any evidence of behaviour that might undermine the conclusions of the IPCC assessments. 
Well, we do find that there's been a consistent pattern of failing to display the proper degree of openness, both on the part of the crew scientists and on the part of the UEA, who failed to recognise not only the significance of statutory requirements, but also the risk to the reputation of the university and, indeed, to the credibility of UK climate science. That was Muir Russell, who led the investigation, speaking after the report was released last week. So, Fiona, what's the impact? Climate change sceptics are totally unconvinced by this report. They've been trying to to pick holes in it all week. They suggested that the questioners didn't ask the right questions, that they were too lenient, they didn't follow up answers to the questions. They're also saying that, that they didn't get a look in. In other words, that um, that this investigating team didn't actually talk to climate change sceptics in the course of the of the investigation. Now, the, the Muir-Russell team, they defend that on the grounds that really that their business was with the scientists and with working out what was going there. Meanwhile, in the field of climate policy, we've had some new figures on carbon credits. This is a list of companies that have actually bought credits from developing countries. And the reason that they do this is to top up their own quota of carbon emissions under the EU emissions trading scheme. They can buy in these cheap carbon credits from places like Africa, China, India, and they can you know, use them to count against their emissions. So as a company, you get allowed to emit a certain volume of carbon dioxide during the course of a year. Is it during a single year or during a, a certain period, during a three during, during, during a single year? If you want to emit more than that, then you have to get hold of the credits from somewhere. You can either buy these credits in Europe from another European company in the European scheme, but they're cheaper, are they, than if you buy them from outside that scheme in, as you say, China, India, Africa? Carbon credits that are issued under the United Nations mechanism come from developing countries and they trade at a discount to the permits that are handed out to European companies. So it's definitely uh, an advantage to companies to, to buy these in. It's also good, of course, for the recipients. Their economy develops as a result, or at least that's the idea. What this investigation has found is that an awful lot of these credits come from projects in China, mainly in China, some in India, that destroy industrial gases. Now, this is controversial because if you've got a factory and you're making refrigerants, very often you will have a nasty gas called um, HFC-23 as the byproduct of your refrigeration. That gas is about 11,000 times more powerful than carbon dioxide in terms of its effect on global warming. So it's a good idea to destroy it. Fortunately, it's a very easy thing to do. You put an an incinerator on your chimney. It costs a few million pounds. Problem is that a lot of factories, especially in China, have been making a great deal of money for this because you get a carbon credit for every tonne of carbon dioxide that you destroy. If you're dealing with a gas that's 11,000 times more powerful than CO2, then obviously you get 11,000 times more credits. So even if you're just destroying one tonne of this gas, you're getting quite a lot back in carbon credits. And bear in mind that your outlay for your factory has been very small. So, so, so you might be selling your, your carbon credits for, let's say, you know, 10 euros a tonne, something like that might yep. be a typical price. So for a single tonne of this gas, uh, this HFC, you're getting €110,000. That's right. Nice work if you can get it. It is, it is. And there's been a lot of suggestions around, a lot of evidence that some of these factories are actually finding that they're making more from carbon credits than they are from their primary business. Is there a suggestion that factories are being set up to make refrigerants purely in order then to benefit from that? 
Well, l- luckily that loophole has been closed. Right. That was closed a couple of years ago so that only factories that were built before 2004 are actually eligible for credits. So you can't just go and set up a factory now. But still, there's evidence to suggest that some of these factories are being kept running in order to get the credits. There's also suggestions that some of the factories are not even running, but they're claiming the credits anyway, or that some of the the factories have the incineration equipment, show it to the inspectors, but then when the inspectors leave, they don't run it anymore. There's a degree of murkiness around these HFC 23 credits, and the UN is trying to take action. They're now considering how to reform the rules on this gas. But in the meantime, these credits are very cheap, most of them coming from China, and a lot of European companies are using them one way or another. Now, hopefully some slightly less murky business. Smart grids. No? Equally this, this murky. Equally murky. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> sorry. Uh, apologies for the uh, slightly depressing tone of the broadcast this week. This sounds like the most fantastic smart idea, doesn't it? Smart grids are fantastic. Smart, everyone yeah, loves a smart grid. Yeah. They're brilliant. You know, you, you put your IT into your electricity network. You have your smart meter in the home. You have all these intelligent switching and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It means you can save a lot of uh, electricity consumption. You have intelligent demand management. You reduce the peaks in general generation, which of course, you know, it's the worst mm-hmm. time to be generating electricity when the demand is highest because you have to use the least efficient plant. And mm-hmm. it's one of these wonderful things. It, it helps the environment. It saves money. It yeah. increases efficiency. It's a win-win-win, marvellous kind it, of thing. It lets you use much more renewables in the energy mix. It lets mix. you use more renewables, yep. exactly. Everyone should like smart grid. Yep. But. Well, the problem is everybody loves smart grid. Everybody loves talking about smart grids. But when it comes to actually doing smart grids, then uh, that's a much more difficult proposition. Progress so far on smart grids has actually been rather slow. Um, We were briefed earlier in this week by a group of scientists who are uh, very familiar with this. And their argument was really that the electricity industry is not really set up to take the kind of risks and do the sort of development um, that a smart grid would require. The electricity business has always been very, very conservative because their business has been to keep the lights on, uh, to keep everything stable. So they're not really a a risk-taking industry. To do uh, smart grids would require a, a big overhaul of the infrastructure and people haven't really quite agreed yet on quite how to do that. They haven't agreed on all the standards that would be necessary. There's an awful lot that's still to be resolved. And unless this gets resolved very quickly, then really it's going to be a long time before we we, we start to actually see any smart grids. And that's going to cause problems because then if you try to bring more renewables onto the grid before you've got a smart grid, then that's not really going to work properly. And also, We're missing out on massive savings in terms of carbon dioxide. And people are missing out on savings in terms of efficiency and money because it costs an awful lot of money to keep our current electricity grids going. And really, we should be be investing in new ones. So if the private sector, as you say, is not kind of geared up to this, does it take some very interventionist government policy in order to kind of shove the industry towards making this kind of investment? That is an idea that's getting a lot of currency at the moment. That was definitely the advice of the the scientists that I was talking to earlier in the week. Uh, It's also been the advice of the UK government's Climate Change Committee, which has said that the liberalised electricity markets in the UK are not working to deliver this kind of step forward. And now the government is, is coming under increasing pressure. And not just the UK government, but around the world governments are coming under pressure on this. Thank you for that set of uh, sobering thoughts. Uh, Fiona, perhaps we'll have some rather more cheerful topics to discuss next week. Thank you very much indeed, anyway, for, for coming along, Fiona Harvey. Thank you all for listening. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Ed Crooks. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to 
ft.com forward slash podcasts.